The Air by Vita Sackville West. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story One The Air. Eight. Chase didn't go back to Wolverhampton. He knew that it was his duty to go, but he stayed on at Black Boys. Not only that, but he sent no letter or telegram in explanation of his continued absence. He simply stayed where he was, callous and supremely happy. By no logic could he have justified his behavior. By no effort of the imagination could he, a fortnight earlier, have conceived such behavior as proceeding from his well-ordered creeds. He stayed on, through the early summer days, that throughout all their hours preserved the clarity of dawn. Like a child strayed into the realms of delight, he was stupefied by the enchantment of sun and shadow. He remained for hours gazing in a silly beatitude at the large patches of sunlight that lay on the grass, at the depths of the shadows that melted into the profundity of the woods. In the mornings he woke early, and leaning at the open window, gave himself over to the dews, to the young glinting sunshine, and to the birds. What a babble of birds! He couldn't distinguish their notes, only to the cuckoo, the wood-pigeon, and the distant crow of a cock could he put a name. The fluffy tits, blue and yellow, hopping among the apple-branches, were to him as nameless as they were lovely. He knew, theoretically, that the birds did sing when day was breaking. The marvellous thing was, not that they should be singing, but that he, Chase, should be awake and in the country to hear them sing. No one knew that he was awake, and he had all a shy man's pleasure in seclusion. No one knew what he was doing, no one was spying on him. He was quite free and unobserved in this clean-washed, untenanted, waking world down in the woods only the small animals and the birds were stirring there was the rustle of a mouse under dead leaves it was too early for even the farm people to be about chase and the natural citizens between them had it all their own way nutley wore a black coat and carried a black shiny bag but nutley knew nothing of the dawn then he clothed himself and passing out of the house unperceived with Thane, since there was no one to perceive them, wandered in the sparkling fields. There was by now no angle from which he was not familiar with the house, whether he had considered the dreamy roofs from the crest of the hill or the huddle of the murray-coloured buildings from across the distance of the surrounding pastures. No thread of smoke rose slim and wavering from a chimney, but he could trace it down to its hearthstone. No window glittered, but he could name the room it lit, nor was there any tenderness of light whose change he had not observed, whether of the morning, cool and fluty, or of the richer evening, profound and venerable, that sank upon the ruby brickwork, the glaucous moat, and the breasts of the peacocks in the garden, or of the ethereal moonlight, a secret that he kept, inviolate almost from himself, in the shyest recesses of his soul for at the centre of all was always the house, that mothered the farms and accepted the homage of the garden. The house was at the heart of all things. The cycle of husbandry might revolve, tillage to growth, and growth to harvest, more necessary, more permanent, perhaps more urgent. But, like a woman gracious, humorous, and dominant, the house remained quiet at the centre. To part the house and the lands, or to consider them as separate, would be no less than parting the soul and the body. 
the house was the soul did contain and guard the soul as in a casket the lands were england saxon as they could be and if the house were at the heart of the land then the soul of the house must indeed be at the heart and root of england and once arrived at the soul of the house you might fairly claim to have pierced to the soul of england grave gentle encrusted with tradition embossed with legend simple and proud ample and maternal not sensational not arresting there was nothing about the house or the country to startle it was rather a charm that enticed insidious as a track through a wood or a path lying across fields and curving away from sight over the skyline leading the unwary wanderer deeper and deeper into the bosom of the country he knew the sharp smell of cut grass and the wash of the dew round his ankles he knew the honing of a scythe the clang of a forge and the roaring of its bellows the rasp of a saw cutting through wood and the resinous scent of the sawdust he knew the tap of a woodpecker on a tree trunk and the midday murmur most amorous mostly sleepy of the pigeons among the beeches he knew the contented buzz of a bee as it closed down upon a flower and the bitter shrill of the grasshopper along the hedgerows he knew the squirt of milk jetting into the pails and the drowsy stir of the byres he knew the marvellous brilliance of a petal in the sun its fibrous transparency like the cornelian coloured transparency of a woman's fingers held over a strong light he associated these sights and the infinitesimal small sounds composing the recurrent melody with the meals prepared for him the salads and cold chicken the draughts of cider and abundance of fresh humble fruit until it seemed to him that all senses were gratified severally and harmoniously as well out in the open as in the cool dusk within the house he liked to rap with his stick upon the door of a farmhouse and to be admitted with a why mr chase by a smiling woman into the passage smelling of recent soap and water on the tiles to be ushered into the sitting-room hideous pretentious and strangely meaningless furnished always with the cottage piano the turkish carpet and the plant in a bright gilt basket pot the light in these rooms always struck chase as being particularly unmerciful but he learned that he must sit patient while the farmer was summoned and the rest of the household too and sherry and a decanter and a couple of glasses were produced from a sideboard at whatever hour chase's visit might chance to fall be it even at eight in the morning which it very often was that lusty hospitality permitted no refusal of the sherry though chase might have preferred instead of the burning stuff a glass of fresh milk after his walk across the dews he must sit and sip the sherry responding to the social efforts of the farmer's wife and daughters the latter always coy always would be up to date while the farmer was content to leave this indoor portion of the entertainment to his women-folk contributing nothing himself but another glass mr chase or the offer of a cigar and the creak of his leather gaiters as he trod across the room but presently chase knew when the conversation became really impossibly stilted he might without incivility suggest that he mustn't keep the farmer any longer from his daily business and after shaking hands all round with the ladies might take his cap and follow his host out into the yard 
where men pitchforked the sodden litter out into the midden in the centre of the yard, and the slow cattle lurched one behind the other from the sheds, turning themselves unprompted in the familiar direction. Here Chase might be certain he would not be embarrassed by having undue notice taken of him. The farmer here was a greater man than he. Chase liked to follow round meekly, and the more he was neglected, the better he was pleased. Then he and the farmer together would tramp across the acres, silent for the most part, but inwardly contented, although when the farmer broke the silence it was only to grunt out some phrase of complaint, either at the poverty of that year's yield, or the dearth or abundance of rabbits, or to remark, kicking at the clod of loam, Soggy, soggy! The land's not forgotten the rains we had in February, thus endowing the land with a personality actual and rancorous, more definite to chase than the personalities of the yeomen, whom he could distinguish apart by their appearance perhaps, but certainly not by their opinions, their preoccupations, or their gestures. They were natural features rather than men, trees or bowls, endowed with speech and movement indeed, but preserving the same unity, the same hodden unwieldiness that was integral with the landscape. There was one old hedger in particular who, maundering over his business of lop and top, or grubbing among the ditches, had grown as gnarled and horny as an ancient root, and was scarcely distinguishable till you came right upon him, when his little brown dog flew out from the hedge and barked. And there was another chubby old man, a dealer in fruit, who drove about the country, a long ladder swaying out of the back of his cart. This old man was intimate with every orchard of the countryside, whether apple, cherry, damson, or plum, and could tell you the harvest gathered in bushel measures for any year within his memory. But although all fruits came within his province, the apples had his special affection, and he never referred to them save by the personal pronouns. Ah, winter queening! he would say, she's a grand bearer, or king of the pippins, he's a fine fellow. And for Chase, whom he had taken under his protection, he would always produce some choice specimen from his pocket, with a confidential air, although, as he never failed to observe, May wasn't the time for apples. Let Mr. Chase only wait till the autumn. He would show him what a Ribston or a Blenheim ought to be. "'But I shan't be here in the autumn, Caleb,' Chase would say, and the old man would jerk his head sagely and reply as he whipped up the pony, "'Trees with old roots isn't so easily thrown over.' And in the parable that he only half understood, Chase found an obscure comfort. These were his lane-made friendships. He knew the man who cut withes by the brook. He knew the gang and the six great shining horses that dragged away the chained and fallen trees upon an enormous wain. He knew the boys who went after Moran's eggs. He knew the kingfisher that was always ambushed somewhere near the bridge. He knew the cheery woman who had an idiot child, and a husband accursed of bees. Bees? No, my husband couldn't never go near bees. He squashed up too many of them when he was a lad, and bees never forget. Squashed em up, so, in his hand. Just temper. 
now if three bees stung him together he'd die oh surely mr chase sir we went down into sussex once on a holiday and the bees there knew him at once and were after him wonderful thing it is the sense beasts have got and memory beasts never forget beasts don't and always there was the reference to the sale and the regrets that were never impertinent and never ruffled so much as the fringes of chase's pride the women were readier with these regrets than the men they started off with unthinking sympathy while the men shuffled and coughed and traced with their toe the pattern of the carpet but presently when alone with chase took advantage of the women's prerogative in breaking the ice to revive the subject and always chase to get himself out of a conversation which he felt to be fraught with awkwardness the awkwardness of reserved men trespassing upon the grounds of secret and personal feeling would parry with his piteous jest of being himself under notice to quit nine when the inventory men came chase suffered they came with bags ledgers pencils they were bright and efficient and chase led them from room to room they soon put him down as oddly peevish not knowing that they had committed the extreme offence of disturbing his dear privacy in their eyes after all they were there as his employees carrying out his orders the foreman even went out of his way to be appreciative nice lot of stuff you have there sir he said to chase when his glance first travelled over the dim velvets and gilt of the furniture in the long gallery should do well under the hammer chase stood beside him seeing the upholstered depths of velvets and damasks like ripe fruits heavily fringed and tasselled the plaster-work of the diapered ceiling the fairy-tale background of the tapestry and the reflections of the cloudy mirrors into this room also he had put bowls of flowers not knowing that the inventory men were coming so soon nice lot of stuff you have here sir said the foreman chase remembered how often representing his insurance company he had run a casual and assessing eye over other people's possessions the inventory men worked methodically through the house ground floor staircase landing passage first floor everything was ticketed and checked chase miserably avoided their hearty communicativeness he skulked in the sitting-room downstairs or when he was driven out of that took his cap and walked away from the house that surrounded him now with the grief of a wistful reproach he knew that he would be well advised to leave yet he delayed from day to day he suffered but he stayed on impotently watching the humbling and the desecration of the house then he took to going among the men when they were at their work what might be the value of a thing like this he would ask tapping a picture cabinet or chair with a contemptuous finger and when told he would express surprise that anyone could be fool enough to pay such a price for an object so unserviceable worm-eaten or insecure he would stand by derisively sucking the top of his cane while clerk and foreman checked and inscribed sometimes he would pick up some object just entered a blue porcelain bowl or whatever it might be turn it over between his hands examine it and set it back on the window ledge with a shrug of the shoulders there were no flowers in the rooms now nor did he leave his pipes and tobacco littering the tables 
but kept them hidden away in a drawer. There had been places, intimate to him, where he had grown accustomed to put his things, knowing he would find them there on his return. But he now broke himself of this weakness with a wrench. It hurt, and he was grim about it. In the evenings he sat solitary in a stiff room, without the companionship of those familiar things in their familiar niches. Towards fortune his manner changed, and he appeared to take pleasure in speaking callously, even harshly, of the forthcoming sale. But the old servant saw through him. When people came now to visit the house, he took them over every corner of it himself, deploring its lack of convenience, pointing out the easy remedy, and vaunting the advantage of its architectural perfection. "'Quoted in every book on the subject,' he would say, "'a perfect specimen of domestic Elizabethan.' This phrase he had picked up from an article in an architectural journal. "'Complete in every detail, down to the window fastenings. You wouldn't find another like it, in the length and breadth of England.' The people to whom he said these things looked at him curiously. He spoke in a shrill, eager voice, and they thought he must be very anxious to sell. "'Hard up, no doubt,' they said as they went away. Others said, "'He probably belongs to a distant branch of the family, and doesn't care.'" End of Story 1, Sections 8 and 9